Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. I guess, again, not having any formal television background, I said, what the hell? And so when the things struck me funny, I laughed, you know, when... Uh, Carrie Wood got caught peeing, and I said it was his last known relief appearance. That I found funny. Charlie Steiner had a very typical New York story. Growing up 17 miles from Ebbets Field in the 1950s, he experienced the typical post-war childhood on Long Island, entranced by Vin Scully and the Boys of Summer. The atypical part was eventually becoming the voice of that franchise, the Dodgers. In between dreaming of calling those games and actually doing it, he called Herschel Walker and New Jersey Generals games, Jets games on WABC in the mid-80s, and Yankees games in the early aughts on WCBS. Oh, and an iconic turn as a sports center anchor during its heyday at ESPN. From the supposed rift with John Sterling when he called those Yankees games to the impeccable line, Francis Scott off-key when Carl Lewis called the national anthem and made it a mess. Steiner has a million stories. He shares them here. It's Charlie Steiner's New York accent. Charlie, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me here. Uh, my pleasure, Charlie. Let's go back to the beginning. Malvern, New York. So when you're growing up, 1950s, 1960s, is this one of those early suburban uh, post-war kind of bucolic experiences as uh, you're growing up just outside of the city? That's exactly right. Uh, I am, in every sense of the word, a, a post-war baby boomer. My father fought in World War II. My parents grew up in the Depression. Uh, they moved to Long Island. I was born in Forest Hills, and then they moved out to the island when I was about two. And so, yeah, I grew up in the 50s. And, you know, my, my love for broadcasting and, and love for baseball uh, began uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And in my neighborhood, you were a Dodger fan or a Yankee fan. I don't remember very many giant fans. But there I was, and, and the first time I listened to a Brooklyn Dodger game, probably in 56, that would have made me seven, uh, do the math, um, I... I heard the sound of the crowd, the crack of the bat, 
and you know a, an umpire off in the distance bellowing strike one and then there was this overarching voice that i heard on the radio and it was vin scully's and i was like that rca victor dog just my ear was almost surgically attached to the radio and and i couldn't believe that there was this guy out there talking among a crowd and I, I had just grabbed me. So I knew when I was seven in my little house in Malvern, Long Island, population of barely 10,000, uh, that I wanted to be the Dodger announcer when I grew up. Little did I know it would take, what, almost 60 years to get there and 3,000 miles and I don't know how many jobs along the way. But that's what I always wanted to be when I grew up. And so I, I, I started listening to the radio above and beyond baseball critically because I was just mesmerized about how words and verbal pictures could paint this wonderful picture in my mind. And therefore, there were others and this radio thing had a, had a future. Did you have the experience we hear so much about from children of the 50s that they grew up listening to Vin Scully and then finally went to the ballpark and couldn't believe their eyes that it was all so real? The green was so green. The blue was so blue. Did you have that experience at Ebbets Field? Absolutely. Now, here's what you have to understand about me and my age and those people who grew up in it. It was a black and white world. Television was black and white. The newspapers were black and white. Magazines were black and white. Occasionally, there might be a color picture or a, a, a magazine cover with color in it. And so the first time walking into what is now looked back upon Ebbets Field as a bandbox was the biggest goddamn thing I'd ever seen in my life. The, the emerald green and the Schaefer scoreboard and all of the stuff that I would watch on television maybe three times a week because that's how often the games were on TV, on Channel 9, and and listened on the radio to WMGM. And then, yeah, the first time I walked inside Ebbets Field with, with my dad holding my hand, I mean, it was a Norman Rockwellian experience. There it was, and uh, I was hooked. And I, there, was, there was never any doubt about what I wanted to be when I grew up. The only doubt was, was I going to be able to do it? So approximately nine years old or so is when the Dodgers break your heart and they decide to leave. How, how do you cope? How do you process something like that? It was really difficult. It was the end of the 57th season. And I'm now watching, you know, what turns out to be the final Dodger games from Ebbets Field. They played a few exhibition, actually regular season games in Jersey City, and that made no sense to me either. Um, and so when they left, I didn't understand the enormity of the Dodgers leaving because it never happened before, and I just assumed they would be back, and they weren't. And then what was a baseball fan and a Dodger fan to do? Um, and so all these years later, when I came out uh, to Los Angeles, folks would say, well, what did you think? about the Dodgers moving to Los Angeles. And the only response I could come up with, I was very passionate on both sides of the story. We'll 
fill in the blanks, but let's spin forward in your career where you do end up as the voice of the Dodgers. And my first experience out at Dodger Stadium was actually last summer. And I was taken aback by how charming and beautiful it was and how much they kept the history of the ballpark and really enhanced the history of the ballpark. And when that sun sets over the mountains and that that Los Angeles sky is a pink hue and you look at this place, you look at the baseball down below, it it really does feel like baseball heaven in many ways. I'm wondering what your experience was like when you first started calling games with that as the backdrop. It is home field advantage in every sense of the word. Uh, may we all age as gracefully as Dodger Stadium has. I mean, it's still an immaculate perception. Um, I just came up with that. That's not half bad. Not bad. Hey, um, you're in this, Charlie. I hope. Um, <laughs> so, again, as a kid, I wanted to be the Dodger announcer. Um, and then, you know, I... I I was even then I said, Oh, I'm not going to be another Ben Scully because there'll never be another Ben Scully. He was Babe Ruth, and um, he was an idol as a kid, a mentor as a grown up, and a friend until the end. Um, and so going to Dodger Stadium every day, and I was very fortunate, as you know, broadcasting for the Yankees prior to coming out here, uh, that I've worked for two iconic franchises, uh, two magnificent stadiums. Um, and, and I worked alongside the Babe Ruth of my business, uh, for the 14 years that we were together. And, uh, it's now my 19th year out here. So coming to LA and fulfilling a dream, uh, unrealistic as it may have been in 1957 or 58 and not understanding the magnitude of a move of a franchise from one coast to the other. Here I am, and uh, every day, and I, I don't say this uh, immodestly or modestly, I just say it, there's not a day that goes by where I don't kind of pinch myself a little bit uh, based on, on the trip and the journey I've had. It's an incredible dream come true story, and you worked alongside Vince Scully, as you said. Vince was a wordsmith. He was poetic. He was lyrical. He was also, he was well-read. He was bright. What What do you think it was about Vin that, that touched people so specifically. You have a better vantage point on his greatness than just about anybody else. There is so many reasons that he is above all of the others who have aspired to do what we do. And I don't know that I've heard very many dissenting opinions when I say that. One, he was fiercely intelligent. Two, he was incredibly curious. Three, he was observant, he had a vocabulary, and then, and one of the things that I, I, I was always gratified to know, the sports section wasn't the first section of the paper that he read in the book. He was a worldly guy, uh, and that was always the way I was. My career began basically in, in news, because you didn't just show up one day and become a play-by-play announcer back in, in the 60s when I broke in. Um, and so he had a great overarching perspective of the world and how and where baseball fit into it. Um, he had that wonderful voice. You know, he was blessed with a fastball. 
He had perfect timing. Um, and the world came to Vin very slowly. And that is the highest compliment. It's like in Matrix, you know, the bullets are flying and, and he's just batting them away. And he could do that in calling a game and telling a story and laying out for the precise amount of time to drink in maximum amount of drama and then continue on. Of course, he did it without uh, an analyst um, most of his career. Um, and so it was just natural for him. He seemingly dictated the pace of the game rather than the other way around. And he had... He was, he was everybody's favorite broadcaster. He was everybody's favorite teacher. He was everybody's favorite uncle. And, and when he was alive, and, and people would ask me about Finn, I would say that L.A., Hollywood, it's a city of stars, and he is the biggest star in town. Even in his death, I think that still holds true. When you first get the Dodgers job... It's on the radio side of things, and Vince Scully has been on television, but they're simulcasting the early innings on both radio and TV. So he's calling the early innings on both. And so you then have to begin. You pick up the action of the fourth inning. That is totally unique for any baseball broadcaster ever. Okay, we're going to start you in the fourth. Was it awkward? Did you resist that at all? How did you handle doing something that really nobody else does? You don't resist when you're offered an opportunity to work alongside paper. That's one. Two, it was unique and it was more difficult than I think folks might imagine. It's like being in a relay race and I'm on the inside track and everybody is passing by. Now all of a sudden the baton is passed to me and I have to sprint like hell and get caught up. Uh, then, you know... As we prepare for a game, we make notes about what are the things we might want to say uh, or not. Uh, you know, by the time the fourth inning came around, Vin had used about 75% of the material. <laughs> but at some point, I'd be able to use or assuage. Um, but that was that was fine. You know, that, that, that was never an issue. Um, look, again, the guy that I wanted to be like when I was seven years old and I'm working, you know, alongside him, I'm, I'm kind of like, um, the sidecar in WC fields motorcycle. I'm happy to go for the ride. Um, and, and it worked, you know, it was me and, and Rick Monday, uh, Monday and I have been together now for 19 years. And so we got it. We understood it. And, um, uh, you know, look, I have no complaints about that whatsoever. None. Zero. Never even came up. Our New York audience, some of them may remember you from USFL New Jersey General Games back in the mid-80s with the original incarnation of the USFL. And this was a wild league with some interesting characters, including the owners. And one of the owners is Donald Trump. He owns the Generals. He brings in Doug Flutie. He brings in Herschel Walker. These are massive stars in the sport now playing a spring football league at Giant Stadium. What are your memories and experiences of calling all, I think every game, correct, of the Generals' existence? 
Yeah, I think I'm one of the few human beings who still lives on the planet who saw every single New Jersey general football game. That's not necessarily a badge of honor. It's just a, an asterisk at the bottom of the page. Uh, he was not the original owner. Uh, J. Walter Duncan, an oil man from Oklahoma, was. He was the one who brought in Herschel Walker. And after the first year, J. Walter Duncan sold the team to uh, the guy who was in those days known as the boy builder, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, J. Walter Duncan was also one of the very few USFL owners, maybe the only one who actually made money on it. Um, and so Trump comes in in 84. Uh, 83 was an exciting time. A brand new football league. Uh, Chet Simmons was the commissioner. He had come from ESPN, of course, NBC before that. Um, Peter Hadhazy was the head of operations, and I knew these guys pretty well. So I was, and, and basically working down the street from them, I would spend an awful lot of time with them in the USFL office where these cockamamie rules changes uh, were beginning. Um, replay. Uh, the two-point conversion, single-digit numbers for wide receivers. So I would be kind of sitting in the office and, and, and batting around these ideas, and lo and behold, boom, we, we started doing this stuff in a new league. At the time, did I think about the longevity, what impact these changes might have made? No, it was just it was just fun um and the generals in 83 uh with herschel became at least on paper the dominant yankees of the usfl or the cowboys of the nfl um and the generals oh by the way had had a sideline reporter a guy named bob cassiola who was the former coach at princeton so we were a three-man booth but one of the three happened to be on the field and that was the first time that had never happened, although Chuck Fairbanks, who was the head coach of the Generals, uh, when we uh, first broached the idea of it with him, uh, said, pardon my friend, no fucking way. But it happened, and, and, and we beat... So there was, the, the USFL was, was a great testing ground um, for what turned out to be the NFL and the rules that they've made, adaptations that they made. Or the whole idea of celebrating in the end zone, which was frowned upon. That all started in the USFL. It was a grand experience, uh, experiment that almost succeeded. Oh, is the the Generals three seasons that you call games the launching pad for you to get the New York Jets job on WABC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, again, I hadn't done any of that stuff before. I was by and large. A studio guy, the RKO Radio Network. I was a sports director of that and brought in John Madden, Keith Olbermann, Tony Bruno, John Martin, and the like. Um, but I always, as a kid, I always wanted to be the Dodger announcer. The fact that, you know, football kind of made itself available to me, coincidentally working at WOR, who had bought the, uh, the rights to the generals, that's how it how it began, and then when they went out of business, uh, Mark Mason, who was then the program director at WABC, called and said, uh, would you like to move over here and do the Jets? 
So yeah, and, and at the same time, you know, I was still working at WOR doing the morning sports on Rambling with Gambling. So I was doing a lot of different stuff at once, but when I had a chance to uh, double down on my play-by-play stuff and, and go to the Jets for a couple of years, uh, I did it certainly with mixed emotions because WOR was at that time the number one radio station, not only in the city, but in the country. Um, so yeah, one precipitously led to the other. This is around the time where Jeff Simoleon and company have the great idea, the brilliant idea of, of launching an all sports radio network in New York. And it had not happened across the country. People thought they were crazy. Year number one, it was a disaster. We had Jeff on the show earlier uh, in the spring, and he took us through just the financial dire straits that they were in. Ultimately, it took them some time to figure it out, but now we know WFN as a behemoth and Sports Talk Radio is omnipresent everywhere in the country. But do you remember the concept being floated around New York Radio at that time and what you thought about the prospects of that working? When I was... When I came back to New York in 1978, and I worked at 99X with Jay Thomas and uh, and then up to WOR and then RKO, uh, there were two sports talk personalities. One was Bill Mazur, who was just brilliant and had, had an encyclopedic mind, and Art Russ Jr. So you had two guys. How they were going to put together an all-sports station 24-7 came with the same reticence, I suppose, for a lack of a better word, was much like ESPN. How are they going to get 24 hours of sports? And how are they going to do two networks? How are they going to do three networks? How are they going to do radio? How are they going to do... Well, it, it happened. I guess the time came. Um... And what they were able to do and how they did it, you know, bringing over Imus, uh, you know, and Mike Green was doing the morning sports there. They had spoken to me about doing the morning sports. And, um, and I, that was at a time where I just begun at uh, ESPN. So the whole idea of sports mushrooming into what it has become and what media has become and the fact that we cover ourselves and how that's uh, gone wildly off the rails. Um, so yeah, I, I remember it. Did I think it was going to succeed? Hell, when I went to ESPN in '88, they were already on the air nine years and weren't doing terribly well yet. Did I think they were going to succeed? No, but I was still a young guy figuring out what I wanted to be and somehow find a way to broadcast for the dot. So it. It was an evolutionary process. Now, let me backtrack. Around 1980, when cable was beginning to mushroom, when ESPN was first on the air, CNN was first on the air, USA Network first came on the air, um, did we know that cable television, where you actually have to pay for it, would become a way of life for America, if not the world. We didn't know. We just did it. And then it, it just kind of took off 
on its own steam and its own momentum. And it, 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 you know, I was just lucky enough, and folks in, of my generation lucky enough to have been there when it exploded. You know, we just had good seats on the rocket ship up into space. Wow. So even by the time you joined ESPN at 88, you are still um, a little skeptical on whether SportsCenter at ESPN really has uh, a future as um, as a cornerstone in, in sports media. My my agent, the great Don Buckwald, not the good, Don, the great Don Buckwald, who has uh, represented Howard for 40 years or more suggested that I not go there. And he said, why do you want to go to a cable station in Connecticut? Uh, again, not many of us knew the potential. and I certainly was one who did not. But I said to him, look, I'm 39. I've basically done only radio. They're giving me a chance to learn on the job. And if it doesn't work, I can go back to radio. Um, and, you know, when they brought in John Walsh, who really was the mastermind and the visionary of what sports center could be, um, it was no guarantee that it was going to succeed. But fortunately, in the space of a couple of years, uh, they brought in me, Keith, Dan, Robin, uh, Mike Tirico, uh, and, and, and Chris Fowler had come up through the ranks. So all of a sudden, between 88 and 90, there was this surge of talent that just kind of showed up one day in Bristol. And and then SportsCenter then took on a life of its own, and ESPN became the behemoth that it is. For our younger listeners and viewers, um, they might not understand how monumental as a cultural touchstone SportsCenter was. As a sports fan in the 90s into the 2000s, it, it created stars. It created water cooler talk. It was as big as sports itself. And today, that's been highly minimized. Do you think that that's based on technology and just how behaviors in society went or something that Sports Center did um, that, that minimized its impact? Well, I, I, there's a lot in that question. Let's, let's begin at the beginning. Sports Center... They weren't quite sure what to do with SportsCenter initially. They figured ESPN would be a an event-driven network. The other side of the argument was, while seasons change and the games may be crappy, um, every day there is sports news. And you put SportsCenter on at the same time every day. And again, it's a, uh, there are three time zones involved. But you put it on every day at that time, people can tune in and find out what happened. This is before phones could provide information and scores and all of that. So in the show that we did, uh, Bob Lee, Robin Roberts, and I, or the show that uh, Keith and Dan did, which was a highlight-driven show, it was must-watch TV because you couldn't get it anywhere else. So people would tune in for the results and tune in for the stories and then in that period of time, there were these enormous sports culture stories that took over. Um, Mike Tyson, uh, the death of Pete Rosell, uh, the fall of Pete Rose. Um, 
all of these stories that had, they were more than just sports stories. And so here we were, we were growing simultaneously with the enormity of these stories that we were covering. And then they decided they would start to promote some of us on the air with the Sports Center commercials. And so all of this was happening at once. It was like spontaneous combustion. And those of us in Bristol, Connecticut, which is two hours from New York and two hours from Boston and one hour too far from either, we were the last ones to know that Sports Center was becoming a big deal. Um, and then when we did, it, we were just kind of, wow, really? Um, and, and the day that the, the, the sale of ESPN was announced and uh, Eisner, uh, who was then the president, not Iger, but Eisner, uh, announced in this uh, internal press conference that the big acquisition from ABC and Cap Cities was not ABC television or any of the other stuff. It was ESPN. Bob Lee and I are working in a concrete bunker in Bristol in cubicles next to one another, watching this press conference on these little monitors, and we're looking at each other, and, and he's talking about us. So there were those clearly who understood what ESPN could become. Uh, we were. Well, that's that's pretty fascinating. You might be best known for allowing yourself to, quote, break on air, laugh on air. One of the best examples of that is when Carl Lewis attempts to sing the national anthem. But you you oftentimes would, would laugh and laugh so hard you might have tears in your eyes. And that was so unique for any television anchor that we would ever see or a sports television anchor. And I think people probably still remember you for that. And, and it's a wonderful signature to have. Is that just your personality that when you get rolling, it's just hard to stop laughing? You know, the first time I lost it was Carl Lutz, which if y'all have not seen it or heard it, uh, where have you been your whole life? And short of that, check it out on um, he He sang the national anthem prior to a Nets-Bulls game in New Jersey in 92 so you're you're talking what 30 something years ago and it was awful and i'm driving to work that morning and we used to have a, a meeting at 10 o'clock every morning an editorial meeting to go over the stories that we might be covering and who's gonna cover what and what reporters are where and so on and at the end of the meeting i said yeah i drove in this morning i'm listening to fan and carl lewis last night did this just the worst rendition of the anthem I've ever heard. Maybe we've got video. So as the meeting goes on and on, finally a, a producer comes up and said, yes, we have it. And it is, you know, historically awful. Um, and so they gave that to me because uh, they used to give me the kickers, the final stories of the show for a little whimsy. And so then they cut it to about 30 seconds or 40 seconds and that was my task that night was to introduce the video of the world's worst national okay was able to do that the problem was and again this is the old days where you had big old cartridges and people would slap in the cartridge and watch it on a monitor what what's about to air all day, people were coming by and slapping in 
the Carl Lewis anthem or what was going to be aired. And I sat in my little cubicle, this is three days of offices and so on, next to this area where people slapped in the cartridge. I must have heard it 25 times. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I laughed every time. So I'm figuring, okay, by 7.30, I should be well laughed at. I introduce it, and in the middle of it, three camera guys are laughing. Stage manager is laughing. Our uh, prompter person is laughing. Jack Edwards, who drew the short, short straw that night, is sitting next to me. He's laughing. And I'm, you know, tears are coming out of my eyes and boogers are flying down my nose. And I'm, and I'm how am I going to do this? So I come back on camera and everybody sees what they saw. And now I'm lost. How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to save my career? And I lean back it, it, in this moment of desperation. There's divine guidance. Either my head pops the name Francis Scott off. I don't know where it came from. Yeah. And thank you, God. Um, it popped into my head and, and it saved a bit. The P.S. to that story is Tim Kiley who then went on to become the great studio producer for TNT and, and the uh, NBA shows and the baseball shows. He was the producer. Then. And, and the folks in, in, in control said, we got to go to Montana. We've got a basketball game starting in 10 seconds. Shut him up and get him off the air. And he said, <laughs> we're sticking with this. And they did. And now all these years later, people still remember it. It was not a, uh, my proudest moment, but uh, it sure has legs. Well, you were also one of the stars of the Sports Center. This is Sports Center commercials, famously with a bandana carrying a bunch of refugees through uh, through the top. Follow me, follow me to freedom. And and so it always felt like you never took yourself too seriously. Whereas again, television anchors certainly of the era wanted to be more buttoned up. Was was that just your personality where you were self-deprecating and, and did the directors or the people around you know, oh, Charlie would do this where some uh, some other people wouldn't? Well, clearly the folks, uh, Wyden and Kennedy, they were the producers of the, the uh, Sports Center campaign and they had uh, the Nike spots, Chicks Dig the Long Ball. They were basically the same format of their 30-second spots as ours were. Um, they were the ones who saw that. I didn't. I was a radio guy. I didn't know the first thing about television when, when I got there. And then, so I was always thought of myself on radio with this little camera thing in front of me. So it was one of those where once I did not get fired after the, the Carl Lewis debacle, <laughs> I thought, well, okay, I, I that's okay. People are responding to it. Not that I intentionally went out tried to laugh myself into a, into a dither, uh, but Bob Lee certainly would kind of poke and prod me <laughs> when he could. So I guess, and again, not having any formal television background, I said, what the hell? And so when the things struck me funny, I laughed. You know, when uh, Carrie Wood got caught peeing and I said it was his last known relief appearance, that I found funny. And I laughed. Or when, uh, you know, 
Tanya Harding and and and, and her ex and how uh, she got he got the car and she got the toolbox. I'm thinking that how is that not funny? <laughs> so you have this wonderful career at ESPN, but you're still longing to do television or play by play rather. And that's longing to do the dog. You're you're longing to do the dog. We're always the folks. So you end up going to MLB on ESPN Radio, calling mm-hmm. baseball for ESPN Radio, and then that dovetails into the Yankees' job opening up as Michael Kay leaves the radio booth for the Yes Network on television. So the slot next to John Sterling opens up. You then pair with John Sterling calling games for the for the Yankees in the early aughts, famously the 3 Aaron Boone game. Much has been written and made about your relationship with John Sterling and the, the years you worked together. Do you remember those years fondly working with the Yankees? And oh, yeah, yeah. oh, look, there's not much about my career that I don't remember fondly. Um, how I got the Yankee job was was really quite by accident. You know, I, I started doing baseball on ESPN television, excuse me, doing Wednesday night games um in 94 maybe what was known as the b game that went into the the smaller markets that did not cover the 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 big game okay i was learning and i had no kick with any of that um and then four years later i'm still doing sports center i'm still covering boxing and so on they uh they get the uh, rights to espn sunday night radio and there I am, I'm able to do it. Now, fast forward to 2001. Um, about a week or two before 9-11, I'm in doing a Yankee game on a Sunday night. You know, John and Joe did the uh, the television. I would do the radio with, I think, Dave Campbell. And I'm sitting in, in Brian Cashman's office, and uh, in walks George unbeknownst to me, he's standing behind me, and then he starts rubbing my shoulder. I turn around. And I'd known George prior to New York when I was working in Cleveland. So I'd known him for a while, and I worked, you know, the local radio in New York for 10 years. And he, and he said, you know, I've been, I watched you this past Wednesday in, in Tampa. Um, you're doing wonderfully. And he says to uh, Cashman, um, I need to see you. And so I get up, and, uh, I walk out, and, uh, and George has left, and I say to Brian, you know, they, with this new network, Yes didn't have a name yet. It wasn't even on the air yet. If something happens here, um, this could be kind of cool. So an hour goes by, I go back to the booth, and uh, in walks Cash. He said, I've got some bad news and some good news. I wasn't expecting any. Well, the bad news is I told George he might be interested in coming here, and then he cursed me out and said my focus is to build a baseball team and not a broadcast. The good news is I think he wants to hire. Okay. So now two weeks go by, and then there's 9-11. And that kind of obviously changes everything for all of us. Um, and I'm you know, still at ESPN, and I'm doing the first game back on ESPN Radio post 9-11 on the 17th of September, the Phillies and the Braves. Um, and it was obviously an emotional experience for all of us who were there, broadcasters, players, everybody. Uh, and then a week later, 
the Mets come home and play the Braves. Um, and I did that game. And then a few days later, I did the Yankees' first game. And so the immediate post-9-11 has, has passed. And now over the final two weeks of the season on ESPN radio, I'm, I'm calling Barry Bonds less 13 home runs. I called, or 13 games. I called 68 through 73. So I was, I was on the air everywhere. Um, and then the giants came and said, uh, would, would I be interested in coming out and working alongside John Miller? Um, and I had two wonderful, um, and my dad was in ill health at the time, you know, in the home in which I grew up. And I thought, well, maybe if I go home to New York, wouldn't that be nice? He could listen to me on his way out, which he did. And that's how I ended up uh, with the Yankees. And so all of that was coincidental, serendipitous. It was all of the stuff you don't expect to happen. Um, and then had three great years and right in the middle of that uh, three-year run, Aaron Boone shows up. Um, so I, I again, it's been it's been a real serendipitous journey. Um, and, and, and as far as John, John, look, John's 85 years old. He has withstood the test of time. We have had similar careers. He's just 10 years ahead of me. Um, and you know, the stuff that was written was pretty much a bunch of hooey. Um, but yeah, we're, we're two play-by-play guys. And, and so there were times where it, it didn't quite fit, but there were also times when we were quite good and our relationship now, all these years and all these miles later is exceptionally good. I've talked to John quite often. Hmm. So when Dodgers and Yankees series happen, you guys play one another, then in the press box, you can kind of reminisce about the old days and chop it up a little bit. You know, we we do it. it when when the Dodgers were out here or the Yankees were out here last month, uh, he he did not make the trip. Right. Um, but what I do find is there are many more people who are not involved in our relationship who make the big deal about it. <laughs> that that I don't consider it to be that big a deal, big a deal, and I don't know that John does either. I mean, look, I've been doing this now. 56 years and John's been doing it 66 years neither of us has had a real job and we're not about to start now um it's all part of the journey what a remarkable story what a remarkable career and to think that it starts in Malvern New York listening to Vince Scully on the radio and Brooklyn Dodgers games to now having had the career you've had nearly 20 years in the Dodgers broadcast booth is just that's an amazing story with everything in between. Um, you got a couple of books in you, I'm sure. You know, I, I've been asked, and I keep saying no, and I asked Vin about that. Again, whenever I had any business or even some life decisions, I talked to Vin because he was as much a father to me, a second father. And I said, you never wrote a book. And I said, why? And he said it boils down to the three E's. Oh, really? What are the three E's? I have neither the energy, the ego, or the economic need. Mm. And that that sounds pretty good to me, too. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, if you just use that as your North Star in terms of life decisions, that's a pretty good one. I mean, Vin, yes. I didn't have anything to ask you way back about what Vin meant 
beyond to me, just extrapolate that out of the tens of millions of people who have listened to him here in LA or you know around the sports world. That's what he had. And he he had the ability to, as I said earlier, he, he could see the world come at him real slow. And that is about the highest compliment I can give anybody. W-O-R, W-A-B-C, USFL, New Jersey Generals, New York Jets Radio, New York Yankees Radio, now Los Angeles Dodgers, both television and radio and ESPN, Sports Center, and everything in between. Charlie Steiner, kind enough to spend some time with us here on New York Accent a project for 2400 Sports, as well as Odyssey Sports and WFAN. Charlie, this was just tremendous. Thank you so much for finding time for us in the middle of baseball season, nonetheless. And this was this was really great. We, we, are, great, we are very grateful for your time today. My honor. It was a, a pleasure to keep my New York accent to a real minimum. <laughs> yeah, you did pretty good. You I did pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. That was great. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic conversation with Charlie Steiner. We thank him for spending so much time with us. A little postscript to the Vin Scully part of the story. Vin, known for class, known for grace, I saw that firsthand. I was a high school kid in Warwick, New York, in Orange County back in the mid-90s, and this was well before Twitter and a little bit before emails, and so... To become a sportscaster, in my mind, I had to reach out to sportscasters who I admired and ask for some advice and maybe get a picture or two autographed and sent back to me that I could pin on my wall of my high school bedroom. And Bob Murphy, the legendary voice of the Mets, was one of those people that I, I wrote to. And I got a handwritten note from Bob on a little piece of Mets stationery that I still have. And one of those icons was Vin Scully. And Vin sent me back a 8 by 10 really a little bit less, probably a 5 by 7 color photo of him and a typewritten letter on Dodgers letterhead. And I will always have that. I still have that to this day. And it was encouraging and thoughtful and impeccably typed and Look, I don't know if Vin typed it himself. Maybe there was, a, there was a secretary to help him do these things. But it wouldn't surprise me, knowing the reputation that he did, that he type wrote, type righted, type, typed? Yeah, typed. That he typed. Vin would be embarrassed that I mis, misspelled that, uh, misspoke that. Vin typed out a letter of encouragement to a high school junior, I think at the time, or sophomore, uh, 3,000 miles away. So I will always remember that in terms of trying to give back to young broadcasters or people that ask for advice, encourage people along the way that, that might have the same dream as you, and, um, and take the time because it, it really does matter. So Vin Scully was a gentleman, and he was a legend, and he touched a lot of people in a really positive way. Thanks to Charlie Steiner for joining us, and thanks to you for downloading this episode of New York Accent. You can catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things, on Sirius XM Channel 158 if you're in New York City, or on the free Odyssey app or the CBS Sports app as well. You can listen to every episode of New York Accent by downloading it on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman on this project. I'm DA. We will see you next week. This is an Odyssey original series.